Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora. The US dollar held held against versus held versus major currencies on a lower than forecast increase in US payrolls and leaders of 21 member nations of the APEC gather in Beijing for the group's annual summit from today. CY Lung says that China will announce a start date for a delayed trading link between Hong Kong and Shanghai's stock exchanges soon. Today on Money for Nothing, Rich Fernandez and Parnit Pal of Wisdom Labs tell us how they're transforming Starbucks Hong Kong staff through integrative mindful living techniques. That's after a rundown of the APEC meeting in Beijing with our economics correspondent Barry Wood. Rob Petty of Clearwater Capital brings us up to date on the Asian private equity scene with two recent case histories and Wei Gu of the Wall Street Journal throws light on multinational companies that are benefiting from China's slowing economy. But first, a look at today's top stories. Some analysts are calling the U.S. jobs report a Goldilocks scenario for the Fed. Here is Mohammed El Arian's take. And I would say it's a solid report given the context and of course the context is something that you've been talking about for weeks which is a weakening global economy so it's impressive that we've been able to create 214,000 jobs plus let's not forget 31,000 in positive revisions so it's a solid report not great but solid given the context the question is that if these numbers continue will we see more wage growth and does this mean that the fed will be behind the curve when it comes to raising rates will we see more earnings growth? And that was disappointing again this this month. Simply not enough earnings growth going on. So I don't think that this will threaten um, the, the Fed policy. But what it does, Betty, and this is really important, it highlights the divergence between the Fed on the one hand and the Bank of Japan and the ECB. And that divergence is going to continue and is continued to contribute to volatility in the foreign exchange market. With U.S. third quarter earnings seasons almost at an end, many investors are breathing a sigh of relief as more companies surpassed profit expectations than in any quarter since 2010. However, some analysts are saying that investors might be brushing off their worries about corporate profits too soon. While most of the S&P 500 companies beat analysts' expectations for the third quarter, some analysts are saying that they just barely topped estimates. In addition, analysts keep trimming their profit forecasts. Estimates for the fourth quarter earnings are down from the start of the quarter, along with estimates for the first part of next year. President Obama has talked about the need for his administration to take a clearer uh, stance on messages to the public about the progress being made on the U.S. economy. Here's what he said on CBS's Face of the Nation. I do need to constantly remind myself and my team of is it's not enough just to build a better mousetrap. People don't automatically come beating to your door. Uh, we've got to sell it. We've got to uh, reach out to the other side and and uh, where possible persuade Uh, and I think there are times there's no doubt about it where uh, you know I think we have not been successful in going out there and letting people know what it is that we're trying to do and why this is the right direction so so there is a failure of politics there that we've got to we've got to improve on when I look back over the last six years um, I am really proud of the fact that People have jobs who didn't have them before. People have health insurance who didn't have it before. Young people are going to college who couldn't afford it before. So we've made big changes. Let's bring in Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent. He joins us today from Canberra. Good morning, Barry. Good morning, Renita. 
So, Barry, what do you make of the jobs report? Well, I think it was very positive. I like what uh, Mohammed El Arian had to say. And uh, I, listening to uh, that clip of the president, it's, uh, it's a pity he didn't um, go to the people earlier with that message and try to sell it because he certainly paid a heavy price. Now, I think the U.S. economy is doing just fine, Renita. I think we've got some problems here in Asia Pacific. And the president will no doubt get an earful of those in Beijing and uh, later here in Australia. Yeah, speaking of uh, the Asia-Pacific, the APEC uh, summit, uh, the U.S. has already made an announcement that they will not be making an announcement uh, about uh, the TFF, the um, Trans-Pacific Partnership deal. What do you make of that? I mean, I know that the reasons cited uh, are that they are still at a deadlock with Japan on some of the import issues. Uh, do you think that this is a major setback, or do you think it doesn't matter? You know, they'll be ready for it when no, they're ready. No, I don't think it's a set. I don't think it's a setback, um, Renita. I think that uh, it's it's very simple, really. I think that the Chinese are pushing their own idea. They want an Asia Pacific free trade area. The Americans and the Japanese, the Koreans, the Australians, the Hong Kong people are all in favor of this Trans-Pacific partnership. Well, if you're in Beijing and you've had a meeting of leaders or trade ministers, both of them, and you're going to have a press conference or some kind of statement in the host city of a country not participating, that's a bit of a problem. So I think it's that simple. They don't want to offend their hosts. They don't indeed. Now, China, of course, is pushing for another free trade deal because it isn't actually part uh, of the 12-member TPP. Um, Do you think that there is going to be a pushing of different agendas, you know, during... uh... Yeah, there is. Uh, Look, I I think, again, in one sense, the scenarios that are before world leaders, both in Beijing and and in Brisbane, is that there are competing visions. And the Americans have sacrificed a lot of leadership by not supporting the International Monetary Fund uh, in getting this uh, quota reform approved by the Congress. And as a result, you've got China not only involved in the BRICS, which is pressing for more power for emerging markets in the fund, but in the trade area, you've got China still outside of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and you've got this new infrastructure bank. So the Chinese are asserting themselves in a way that makes the Americans marginalized in a way. So you've got the Americans competing against the Chinese. Ideally, this would all be resolved. China would come into the TPP, which I think is a very clear possibility. But, you know, the Chinese don't like the Japanese. And the Asian Development Bank down in Manila is run by the Japanese. So these are, these are complex phenomena. But it seems to me, Renita, if Mr. Obama in his last two years really wants to make good on this pivot to Asia, he's going to have to listen to the Chinese very carefully and somehow be compatible with what the Chinese and the Americans want. It's all really the same thing, but it's going to take a lot of effort to get there. Now, Barry, there's also been some speculation this weekend that China and Russia are growing closer. Since you mentioned the pivot to Asia, uh, certainly President Obama is pivoting to Asia, but Russia apparently appears to already be there. Do you think this might be a cause for concern? Well, I, I do. I, I think it's really very interesting. Do you realize this will be the 10th 
meeting between President Putin and Xi since 2013. This is remarkable. These two leaders are coming together. Someone said that Russia-Chinese relations are the best they've ever been. But again, a lot of that comes as a result of the BRICS initiative that both countries are involved in. And the Americans have been so adamant in pushing punishment for the Ukraine intervention that, uh, you know, Mr. O- Mr. Putin is really an outsider. So the fact that he meets with President Xi and they find common ground on things, I think, is not a surprise. And it certainly injects a new element into global politics. All right, Barry, before we close, uh, tell us quickly what we should be looking out for later this week. Well, I think in the States, we want to look out for Walmart because Walmart's under pressure and they're going to report on Thursday. We're going to get retail sales on Friday. But I think what we really have to look out for are the atmospherics that occur in Brisbane next Saturday and Sunday. And I'm lucky enough to be there. I think that uh, this G20 thing has got a lot of potential, but it has run down in the last two or three years. And the Australians want to be a good host and energize this entity. We'll see. Absolutely. All right, Barry, we'll be uh, listening and uh, looking to hear it uh, all straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Thank you so much for joining us this morning on Money for Nothing. That is Barry Wood, our U.S. and international economics correspondent. The time is now 8.12 a.m. and an upswing in exit activity and capital inflows into Asia is uh, creating a greater level of optimism across the region compared with 12 months ago. As the markets mature here and wider, the wider business community uh, extends across Asia uh, and gains a better understanding of private equity, a next level of private equity investors is emerging. Joining us now to bring us up to date on the scene is Rob Pet- of Clearwater Capital. Good morning, Rob. Good morning. So, Rob, funds uh, have private equity funds have traditionally relied on market beta to boost their results, but word has it that this is no longer the case. Uh, can you sort of give us an update as to how they are actually looking to deliver value? So that's a, a always a hard question for private equity managers who think you know with a five to ten year time frame. And the markets who seem to think about public equity markets and the beta, as you allude to, of the volatility and the upswings and the moods that may be one week long or one month long. And so the private equity world uh, tries to think in the intermediate term perspective. But as you think about returns of the private equity world, which you allude to, and what are we all doing, uh, I think the, the time frame is, I think, an important component to remember. And I also think that you know, private equity managers have really become more sophisticated in Asia. And I think it's that growth and sophistication, if you will, the maturing of the private equity business in Asia is really the phenomenon that you're alluding to and that we in the private equity businesses across the emerging markets generally in Asia specifically you know, are developing more and more of the operational turnaround skill sets, are developing more of the sort of contrarian industry-specific uh, Rob, tell me, why is time frame actually so important? You know, the advantage of private equity in its most core perspective is that we are dealing in private companies and we have duration of capital to be able to play. Can you give us a couple of examples, uh, Rob, maybe of maybe one situation that worked and maybe one that didn't? 
so you know our listeners can get a better reference to context. So I think, you know, today to be very specific about a concrete example of one that worked is a company called Suzlon. And in our particular industry, in our particular practice, we at Clearwater Capital are sort of turnaround distressed investors. And so we invested in a year ago and a year and a half ago, if you think about India, Suzlon is the fifth largest wind producer in the world based in India. They went through a difficult capital constraint time. And so investing in the counter-cyclical view that India was going to rebound and specifically the wind power industry, if you look at both of those phenomena, the wind power industry has rebounded and specifically India has rebounded so well with Modi momentum and since the currency clause, that particular investment in helping turn around a business, long-term capital into helping a business that fundamentally had value but was having a difficult phase, gave us two, three years so that Suzlon has been able to rebound. Okay, so certainly energy, energy sector, India, Modinomics. I mean, uh, those are all factors that combined together bode well. But it also, to the duration point, I want to highlight the fact that to do it, you had to do it in a contrarian mindset two years ago when nobody believed India. And if you talked about investing in India two years ago, the private equity world or the investment world itself would have said, you're, you know, you're, you're certainly going against the investment trends. Is that your example of something that might not work out well? That actually did? <laughs> you know, that's a great example is because the truth is, you know, it is not finished yet. And while the restructuring has been completed and the stock price is up and we are big believers in it going, it is not yet uh, fully exited. Okay. So, Rob, what would you say is your outlook uh, for Asian private equity in general? And what specific regions are you looking at, you know, over the next foreseeable future? Is it India? So we've actually made substantial So outlook for private equity is it's going to continue to grow. It's going to continue to mature. And I think the maturity of the industry and indeed perhaps the consolidation of the industry in various dimensions across Asia is what will be the big trend of this coming five-year episode. So that's overall. You know, specifically our own thinking of where is opportunities? We don't just think geographically. We certainly are big believers in India, but we think we've made our India bets over the past two years. We are actually investing contrarian into China as people now look at the headlines of China and worry about the China economic stability and economic opportunity. We happen to be contrarian in that view. So, Why are you contrarian? I mean, that is so interesting. You know, fundamentally, we think that the transition from a manufacturing economy to a consumer economy, the leadership of China will succeed in doing this, that there will be bumps and there will be problems and there will be consolidation and declines of those businesses, but this will not be a systemic problem. And indeed, the valuations today of businesses and the ability to get into businesses when other people aren't is exactly the timing to be thinking about China in five years. We'll be glad we put money to work today. All right, Rob, thank you so much for joining us. That is Rob Petty of Clearwater Capital. The time is now 8.18 a.m. And let's take a quick look at the numbers. The Nikkei is down uh, five-tenths, half a percent to 16,788. Australia's ASX is also down four-tenths of a percent to 5,498. And Seoul's Kospi is up just slightly, just a tad, to 1,953. Well, many of China's bigger companies
companies saw business get worse from the second quarter. Multinationals have especially been hit by the slowdown. Joining us to discuss this now is Wei Gu, Wall Street Journal's editor of China Wealth and Luxury. Good morning, Wei. So, Wei, how much of what we are seeing with multinationals in China can be attributed to a general slowdown in growth that certainly Rob Petty is not uh, is taking the contrarian view um, versus the specific move perhaps to online shopping? Right. In terms of consumer uh, sales, there is an element of online shopping taking much of the market share, but also consumption that used to be seen as a very resistant part of the economy, and people are even betting on it to take the lead for future Chinese growth. Looks like with the economy slowing down in places like investment, housing-related, consumption is slowing as well. That's hurting multinational. So can you give us some examples of specific multinationals that have been hurt? Yeah, so initially it's the luxury goods that's reeling from the anti-corruption and austerity complaint. So that includes uh, Caring, that's the parent of Gucci and Puma, and also LVMH Group. And then it's spreading to uh, staples, for example, Meat Johnson, that's baby formula producer. So in the past, people feel that Chinese will be, um, even if they are skimping elsewhere, they will always be buying the best things for their children. Um, we're still kind of seeing that, but the growth of the baby, the high-end baby formula market is slower than before, and there is much competition as well. Uh, and also, even at Walmart, the kind of the discount level, they are also suffering from uh, the less gift card shopping and the overall move to online. Okay, so Walmart is a great example, Way, I mean, Walmart, as you know, will release its uh, earnings results later this week, and all eyes are on it, certainly in the U.S. Um, and here in China, because the company has already said that it is very strongly focused on boosting profitability at its more than 400 China stores. So what do you make of this? Yeah, well, the supermarket um, sector in China is actually weakening from before. Uh, A, there is a lot of competition. So you have the European and the American and the local players. They are all competing very aggressively. And second, there is this structural shift from supermarkets to small shops, stores in communities and online shopping. And Singles Day, which is the Tomorrow. biggest one day sale that's drawing closer, Alibaba and a lot of others are using this opportunity to grab customers using heavy discounts and convenient uh, delivery options. So they are under attack. Yeah, Singles Day is an interesting one because, I mean, certainly to, uh, you know, people coming from the West, I mean, you know, it, it gives us the opportunity for another shopping day, another shopping day before sort of the traditional holidays. How much of uh, truth do you think there is way in Singles Day being associated with online shopping? We know that Alibaba is, you know, creating all these great discounts to sort of make it that way. But do you really think it is uh, a function of online shopping versus uh, bricks and mortar do you are you talking about the singles day specifically uh yeah but singles day because of the the heavy promotion so people the the online 
merchants are all gearing up uh, towards that. For consumers, it is a good opportunity to shop. And the problem is, I mean, how much of that is people waiting, holding their purchase until November 11th? And how much of that is after the Singles Day binge? And then people are going to hold out shopping for a while. So I think well, Alibaba is under a lot of pressure to deliver, to deliver another Singles Day success since it has just become a new public traded company in the U.S. Right. So they're trying extra hard for that. Okay, well, we'll be watching tomorrow. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Wei Gu, the editor of China Wealth and Luxury at the Wall Street Journal. The time is now 8.23 and we'll be back to talk uh, about wisdom capital and what that means. That's right after this message. The village representative election and Kaifong representative election are approaching. Candidates, election helpers and voters should observe the law. It is an offense if any person offers advantages, food, drink or entertainment to induce votes for any particular candidate. Any person who accepts will also be guilty. Abide by the law. Support clean elections. ICAC Report Hotline 2526-366. Well, the time is now 8.24 and mindful living in the workplace, what is that all about? Companies across the board are benefiting by training their employees in various wisdom techniques that can help them to be more productive in the workplace. Joining us now to tell us more about this, uh, Wisdom Capital co-founder Rich Fernandez and partner Parneet Pal, who are visiting Hong Kong to conduct wisdom trainings for Starbucks. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on Money for Nothing. Great to be here, Renita. Yes, good morning. So, uh, Rich, if I could start with you, what are wisdom techniques and why are they necessary for building the value of human capital? So uh, one really important thing to consider is that uh, people are an investment rather than a, than a resource that will uh, naturally expire and uh, that you need to transact with. And uh, throughout uh, my experience, for example, at places like Google and eBay, uh, we consistently saw that building a happy, healthy workforce created also a productive workforce. In fact, at Google, for example, that is one of the core values. Uh, happy, healthy, and produ- the happiest, healthiest, and most productive workforce on the planet. And you can't get to number three unless you get to one and two. In terms of the actual techniques and the things that we are able to deliver to companies in terms of wisdom capital, we look at the neuroscientific basis of behavior, of uh, decision-making, of judgment, um, and and of the ability to engage uh, uh, teams and employees. Um, And then we use those techniques, things like uh, focused attention, mindfulness training, um, training uh, on uh, the ability to authentically connect and communicate with others to really drive this kind of behavior. Okay, so now I have to ask, you guys are visiting from San Francisco. Who cannot be happy or healthy in San Francisco? (laughs) And all of your clients that you've mentioned, Google, eBay, I mean, that's where they are. Is it a function of where you are, Parneet? Or, I mean, certainly you're not in San Francisco right now. That's right. Um, actually, Renita, this is something we're seeing globally. What it takes to succeed at work these days is completely at odds with your personal well-being. Um, and that is applicable actually more so in the Bay Area in some ways. Um, because, you know, in a, in a culture where the impossible takes two days but and miracles take three, um, t- in order to keep up with that sort of pace at work, um, often well-being gets relegated to the bottom of your list. Um, and really what we're seeing is that, you know, the mill- millennials, 
skills. What they're looking for is to reconnect with their passion and purpose. That's really important for them. Um, so how do you do that at work? Um, and just sort of to give um, a different frame in terms of healthcare costs and companies globally are realizing that, um, you know, CFOs are really concerned in one of the global surveys, 60% of them said that that is top of mind for them, you know, the, um, the healthcare costs of employees and how do you manage that? Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's a global phenomenon. So this is interesting. So the idea is that if you focus on this kind of training and invest in people, as you say, Rich, uh, their well-being is enhanced um, and that serves the human resources uh, department of the company better. Right. Is that it, right? It, yes, because of the ever increasing complexity and overload that people are facing, when you offer them these types of things, they're able to be more focused make better decisions, be more productive on a sustainable basis, which then translates into things like ongoing employee engagement, which then eventually hits the bottom line. For example, when we see high engagement companies, companies that have cultures where employees are very engaged and have meaning and purpose driven performance, uh, we see those companies outperforming, for example, the S&P by a factor of three and same with the Russell 2000. That's interesting because, uh, you know, so much of this is, you know, you're wondering how do you relate the human resources piece with the actual output. So it's interesting to, you know, hear those examples. What Now, you're here all week. You're here for five days. What exactly are you teaching them? How do you teach mindfulness or, you know, any of these other components? Right. So the key thing to understand is that the brain is changeable and you can tra- train the brain to change in certain specific dimensions. Things like... Uh, Paying attention, focus, insight, innovation, those are all trainable skills. Uh, and what you do is you train on certain techniques, and it goes beyond training, actually. It requires uh, you know, teamwork and interaction. And what we do is we connect them to each other, we connect them to themselves through these techniques, where then they're able to kind of create a greater focus, greater clarity, greater insight in their work. And I just want to quickly add that a really uh, important part of mindfulness, so it's not just about focus, attention, and productivity. It's also about acting ethically. Um, and that's, you know, how when, after you pay attention, how do you respond to what's happening at work? And how do you um, uh, really put into practice the mission, vision, and values of a company in everyday life? Which, and how do you create wise and compassionate companies? That is really important for us. And that's a key part of the training that we do. I mean, ethics, I mean, that is, you know, something that comes up a word that comes up again and again here in Asia. Do you have specific proof as to how this could be changed with your kind of training? Well, that remains to be seen. Um, What we do know is that um, uh, the neuroscience is showing that the practices, specifically compassion practices, allow you to have more insight, uh, um, increase creativity, increase your focus. um, And so, you know, ostensibly that will lead to better decision making. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. That is Parneet Pal, who is a partner and Rich Fernandez, co-founder of Wisdom Capital in San Francisco. A quick look at the numbers before we depart for the day. The Nikkei is down eight-tenths of a percent to 16,744. Australia's ASX index is down half a percent to 5,495. And Sol's Kospi is up uh, 1% to 1,960. In currencies, the U.S. buys you 114 U.S. dollar buys you 114 yen. Uh, one Great Britain pound buys you 12 dollars and 31 cents. And Brent crude oil is currently at 83 dollars and 80 cents. And gold is at 1,169 dollars per ounce. A quick look at the weather forecast before we depart for today. Uh, it'll be cloudy with one or two rain patches in the morning. Bright periods during the day. The maximum temperature will be 
around 25 degrees Celsius. Currently, the temperature is 23 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 84%. Now it's time for the half hour news summary with Todd Harding. In Germany, thousands of illuminated balloons positioned along the 15-kilometre line where the Berlin Wall once stood have been released into the night sky to symbolise its collapse 25 years ago. The wall was built in 1961 to stop people in East Germany escaping to the West. Damien McGuinness was at the celebration. This is the finale of the anniversary celebrations. Right now I can see the illuminated balloons which symbolise the Berlin Wall being released into the night sky. And from where I'm standing, it looks like tens of thousands of people are gathered around the Brandenburg Gate. But when the wall was up, this monument was trapped in the middle of no man's land. It was a deserted, forbidden zone. That changed exactly 25 years ago, when young people started climbing on top of the wall and defied border guards by running through the gate. Something.